0: our majestic king jesus majesty worship his majesty we come before the majestic King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we bow low before you, Lord, in our hearts. Yes, we're standing or sitting, but but in our hearts we are are bowed uh, because we know that you and you alone deserve all glory and all power and all honor. And we just want to give that to you in in this hour. Lord, help us to learn from your word. Help us to give you praise. Help us to walk out of here a little bit uh, more chiseled into the image of Jesus than when we walked in. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright. Hey, be sure and uh, grab one of these uh, connection cards, a blue card in the pew back in front of you. And especially if it's your first or second time, we'd love to know you're attending with us today and how we can minister to you or answer any questions about our church. And of course, there's always a prayer card. Uh, those those can be turned in in the offering plate, or you can take those to the Connection Center after uh, after the, the service. Well, last uh, week, um, Brother Philip reminded us that... Uh, Jesus uh, is, currently reigns, not waiting to reign, but reigns now. Amen? And, and that makes a big difference in how we're going to be warriors, how we're going to put on the armor. And uh, so I, I've chosen a couple of rain songs, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-T-N, uh, raining songs. And so let's, uh, let's sing about, about God's reign in this world. Every. God's reign is was written in the 18th century. Isaac Watts, the writer of over 750 hymns, and we're going to sing another one of his uh, great ones here in a minute, is the writer of Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. It's rooted in Psalm 72, but it also reflects the 18th century geopolitical um, part of the world in which he lived. Does everybody remember studying about the phrase, the sun never sets on the British empire, Right. Um, in, that, in that era. And this great hymn came to mind when Brother Philip was talking about Christ's reign last week. It's widely considered the first global missions hymn ever written. And so let's sing it together. Jesus shall reign. Lord God, at this time of of offering, uh, we are reminded that you reign, you rule, you own it all, and we are simply stewards of uh, what you blessed us with. And so, Lord, help us to return to you those tithes and offerings that you deserve and uh, that really, uh, it's a paradox, but it enriches us to give it to you because it proves to, if, if nothing else, to ourselves that we trust you. And so, Lord, help us to, to do that obediently and joyfully as you've commanded. And may every penny uh, go to, the, to further your kingdom and the cause of Christ here on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In
1: Christ alone.
2: How did y'all feel this week to know you had a balloon floating over the state of Missouri? I told Natalie I thought about going redneck for a few moments and pulling out my rifle and just watching to see if I could take care of it. That was certainly a visible manifestation of what we think about in our country no matter what intel it was trying to find. It's kind of a scary thing. makes us pause and wonder what's going on in our world. Well, I want to remind you, as John Stott says, beneath the surface, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. We see that one visibly, but I'm preaching on one that is not as visible, but is more real than we could ever imagine, the spiritual battle that we are in. Ephesians 6, began in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, here's our emphasis today, against the schemes of the devil. Next week we'll see this part. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we consider this particular text of Scripture and schemes of the devil, listen to what Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians to get our thoughts on this particular need to stand firm in the full armor of God. And there's a so that in this text. So that we are not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. So that we, under, we put on the armor so we can stand in opposition, Right? Against the schemes of the devil. Here's an example of what is meant by that. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Note verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So, that word designs is different from the word wording that we have in Ephesians 6 regarding the schemes of the devil. The word back in 2 Corinthians means purpose, design, plot of evil intent. So, I read that to let you know right up front that we have to acknowledge that Satan has schemes, plots, plans and wiles. In our world, if you propose that there might be a spiritual cause behind the problems we face in our country, uh, you're going to be labeled as a fanatic. That you are silly, naive, or just, better word for our generation, unenlightened. We would not deny that there are some answers to the problems that we face in our country uh, that can be studied through biology and sociology, yet those things cannot provide the answers. We must take into account, ladies and gentlemen, sin. We must take into account Satan when you try to assess the problems that we have in this world. So Paul is giving us a clarion call this particular morning, right now, to let us know that our battle is real. It's an unseen battle. And it's beneath these visible problems. And for us to stand against these things... According to 2 Corinthians and here in Ephesians, we cannot be ignorant concerning the devil's schemes. If you're going to stand against those schemes, you have to know what they are or at least have a good understanding biblically of what they are so that you can stand. So the warning is to help us be armed against them. John Piper says, A wartime mindset must include shrewd knowledge of enemy tactics it's a good way to think about it the enemy for sure knows what his schemes are and he's implementing these schemes day by day hour by hour and I realize that it's going to be impossible for me to address biblically all of the schemes that are here why because the devil is not lacking in creativity right but my prayer is that as we go through this this morning I can give you some biblical insight into the schemes now let me tell you up front I don't like preaching about the devil He's foul, He's vile, He's an enemy to our souls. Why am I preaching this? Because it's in the Word of God, and it's also a necessity that we hear this. Did you know that we find in the Bible titles of God? You would remember some of these singing as a kid. Jehovah Jireh, my provide. There's different names. Yahweh this, Yahweh that. Those are titles. He really only has one name and it is Yahweh but there are titles and all of the titles have to do with his character his person who he is. In like manner we have an enemy who's an adversary and the Bible gives you titles so that it reveals his character and his wickedness. That's why they're giving you, that's why the scripture give you, gives you these titles. So let's Think about some of these titles this morning, okay, of who he is. First, he is called our adversary. Uh, We looked at this in 1 Peter before, chapter 5. I'm going to turn fast and read for the sake of time, but listen to chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil. There's the first term used in the Bible or the one we're going to see first. And it's the idea that he is a proponent. He is an enemy. Uh, he, he is against you. He is our adversary. Okay? I should not a proponent. He is opponent. Against us as our enemy. The second one you'll be really familiar with. And in the Old Testament it is shatan. What's that sound like? Yes, when you get to the New Testament Greek is satan or Satan, that name is used 36 times, and the thrust of the meaning is, again, adversary. He is the one who stands against us as our opponent, against God and against God's people. He is our enemy. And keep in mind, this name Satan is only used as the enemy of the devil and as the enemy of God and all the ones who actually belong to God. Here's another one, Diabolos, who is that? Devil. It's used 37 times in the New Testament. And the meaning is a slanderer or the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12 uses Diabolos, the accuser of the brethren. Zechariah 3 will mention that he stands as as an accuser against Joshua. He's also called the tempter. You all remember what happens in Matthew 4. Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's thrust forth into the wilderness and there he will face the... Tempter, listen to First Thessalonians, chapter three, verse five. The Bible is going to use the same terminology. Chapter three, verse five. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to you to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would therefore be in vain. John Bunyan. And Pilgrim's progress will use the name found in Revelation 9 11, and it is the word destroyer, destroyer and it is Apollyon. That word means he's the destroyer. In Matthew 6.13, and in John, first John 5.19, he is identified as the evil one. He's also called the serpent, the dragon, and the lion. So these names reflect that he's cunning, he's fierce. He's dangerous, and he's hostile toward God and his people. He's also called the God of this age, and he's also called the prince of the power of the air. Let me say with that, uh, it's really incumbent upon us not to jump to conclusions when we hear that and think that that means Satan rules the world. There's only one ruler, and that's the Lord God. Remember that Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, and he's an imposter. Satan doesn't have the inherent right to rule anything. Not one thing. To acknowledge any right of Satan to rule anything is treason against the Most High God who does rule and reign all things. So, he is over heaven and earth. God has given Satan dominion, has not given Satan dominion over man. Man is in the dominion of Satan only because of his sin. In man's revolt... Against God, he aligned himself with Satan. So in this sense, Satan is his God, those against the Lord, and his prince. Man is captive in the jurisdiction of darkness. He came into his own because his own received him not. Why? Because they loved darkness more than light. So each title reflects something that is true about our enemy. Remember, he's the adversary, right? He's our opponent. He is the enemy. He is the evil one. Now think about that word or that terminology, evil one, especially when it comes to Ephesians 6, verse 11. Scheming against us. The NLT says that he has strategies and tricks that are against us. He's scheming. He's employing strategies and schemes against us. So, let's talk about some of these schemes. And where do you think we should start? How about the book of beginnings, right? Genesis chapter 3. Turn there quickly. Just let me whet your appetite, give you an understanding of of the flow of the, the Scripture, and let's point out some of the schemes. You know who he is. All these titles. I know that was a brief sketch. But to help you understand who we're dealing with, Chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty, hearing that, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, here we go with an all-out assault on the character of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's an absolute statement. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, here we go. Total assault on not only the character of God, but how about the word of God? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when we go back to Genesis 3... We see that he is crafty and he is subtle. He approaches the woman and not the man. Go ahead and understand right now, that was intentional. Okay? He goes to the woman and not the man. His approach is subtle. His deception is very unpretentious, we might say. There's something that's kind of natural about this conversation... He doesn't come out with an all-out frontal attack. He's subtle. He's crafty. And notice how Paul will comment on this in 2 Corinthians. I know I'm giving you a running commentary, but for you to understand, you need to see it. Chapter eleven, verse three. Here's what Paul would say. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray for it from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ that context is about preaching another gospel other than Christ and Paul is afraid that you Corinthians will fall into that why because of the cunning subtlety of the enemy and the fact that you will lose your devotion to Christ so Paul is concerned about this and he highlights Satan's craftiness and Eve's Eve being deceived so let me go back uh, look at 1114 of 2 Corinthians and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself, how? As an angel of light. In Genesis 3, it's not a frontal attack, just a total of a thing in pyrotechnic colors in the air. I mean, this is not a big blow-up type thing. He is subtle, he is crafty in what he is doing. So, more times than not, our enemy is subtle and crafty. The purpose of his craft and subtlety is always for what, young people? Deception. Deception. That's his goal to deceive the devil's intent is always to deceive us. Listen to Revelation 12:9. John says, "And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, here in some of these titles, who is called the devil and Satan, here the deceiver of the world." has been thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Please hear this. The problem with being deceived is that we do not know that we have been deceived. That's why it's called deception, right? So our enemy excels in deception 101, and he has 100 different ways that he does it. So what we can see in Genesis 3 first is there's this attack on God's character. And I mentioned that as we we were reading. He doesn't just point blank. Say, hey Eve, God's word isn't true. God isn't faithful. There's no way those promises are real. He asks a subtle question. Has God said? In that subtlety, he is dropping in and slipping in a little innuendo. He's impugning upon the goodness of God. God gave them freedom, folks. I mean... You think God is holding out and he's told you you can have everything in the garden. But the enemy says, why don't he give you that other tree then? That's the subtlety. They have all the freedom in the world. God has been so good to them to bless them with all of these things. This was absolute truth given by God. Every tree is yours except one. Satan comes in with this little innuendo and impugns the goodness of God. Have you ever read the book of Job? I mean, think about this. Is this not what the goal of Satan is? The Lord says, have you considered my servant? And Satan basically says, if you snatch the rug out from from under him, if you take his hedge of protection, in other words, I can't get to him right now because you're protecting him. There's a lot of theology there for us. You better be glad that God is restraining in your life. But the fact is, he says, if you'll do this, he will... Curse you to your face! Now we know God bless those women. No, I'm kidding. His wife says to him, just after he loses it all, "Why don't you just curse God and die?" Whew. I bet Job's wife was a piece of work, don't you think? <laughs> but that's exactly what the enemy wanted Job to do. The enemy's goal was for you and me and everybody else to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you, his most effective weapon, seeks for you to doubt the goodness of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, and the sovereignty of God. He wants you to think that he's in control of this world. He wants you to live in fear. So I don't think we should look for Satan's attacks, again, as a pyrotechnic display, where he comes and says, I'm the devil. No, that's not what he's going to do. Instead, he's going to be subtle. He's going to be crafty. He's going to work your thoughts to where, to where you think God is really not good or that God is really not loving me. He's really not wise. Does he know what he's doing? You better believe it. He knows. The enemy knows what he's doing. And he wants you to think God doesn't know what he's doing. Thus, he held out and didn't give you that tree that you could get the knowledge of good and evil. So, I simply want to remind you that Satan's attack is focused on the character of God Not only the character of God, but what about the word of God? You can't really separate those two, right? Think of this. In the garden, after Satan challenged the goodness of God, he begins to challenge the word of God. He moves from, has God said, to, you shall not die. And this was absolute, blatant denial of the word of God. In reference to God's word, what does the enemy do to us? He wants you to doubt it. He wants you to reject it. He wants you to be in unbelief. Do you remember the parable of the four soils? What happens when the seed is thrown on rocky ground? The enemy swoops in and what does he do? Snatches the seed away when it is sown. He His attacks are numerous. God's, he wants you to question this. We know this has happened. It's happened to our own young people in this church. It's happened to those who used to frequent churches, plural, but no longer do it anymore. What does he want you to do? He wants you to stop and say, Is God's word really truth? Is God really faithful to his promises? So he can bring us to the place where we actually begin to reject the teaching of God's word, or simply we get to the place we don't believe it anymore. All of this is the subtle attacks of the enemy against the word of God. I want you to know that Satan is also a very good scripture twister, isn't he? He can appear as the prince of darkness. We get it. But the text says he also presents himself as an angel of light. He hates the word of God. He hates it when the gospel is preached. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, doctrines that are demonically inspired. Do you know that usually in all cults that you hear of out there in the world, there is a problem with what they believe about the person of Christ or it's about the Trinity. You can pretty much mark it down that if it's a cult... If it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Islam, wherever you want to go with that, there's going to be a problem with the fact that they do not accept the biblical teaching of who Jesus Christ is or they're going to deny something about the Trinity. They get it twisted. And this is what the enemy loves to do. Any religious institution that denies the biblical Christ as given in this word is a synagogue of Satan. Right? As of Revelation 3. So, I would remind you today that Satan's biggest weapon has never been atheism. It's religion. If he can get you to be a little religious. I'm not talking about born again, belonging to Christ. But religion. Thinking that you're doing something to get you to God. Instead of Christianity, which is God coming after man. There's a major difference in those two. So, Satan is also a liar. Was this not manifested in the garden? Once he begins to soften up Eve's heart with subtle innuendos, he comes right down to the point. You won't die. Is that in complete antithesis to the word? You better believe it. In the day that you eat, you will die, surely die. That's right. This was in complete antithesis. So, If it's God's truth that gives us life and sustains life, then it's Satan lies. Satan's lies are designed to do what? To kill and to rob us of the word and life. And he lies. His lies are designed to kill the soul. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not just giving some kind of rhetoric to get you to do this or that. I'm giving you biblical truth. I'm telling you what the real deal is according to the Bible. There's a real devil who has real desires to destroy our souls. And I'm trying to warn you that. He, ha- he gives damning lies. So he has always spoken lies. He will continue to speak lies. Because he speaks according to his nature. He was a liar, Jesus said, from the beginning. Okay? So his primary weapons are lies. Have you ever had someone tell you that you're not a good liar? That happens to me all the time with my kids. I mess around with them and they look. You're not serious. You're pulling my leg. Well, guess who is a good liar? Satan. Luther said his craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. Every time he opens his mouth, he does it with such smoothness and persuasiveness and power. He's not just a liar. He's a good liar. Have you ever tried to craft a story? You kids know about this, right? Mom and dad's going to come home, and they're going to ask me a question. And I know I'm caught, but I've I've got it in my mind how I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to walk it through with this particular plan. When she asks this, I'm going to say this. When he asks this, I'm going to say this. And you think you've crafted the best lie in the world, but you know what? Be sure your sin will always find you out. I want you to know that nobody can maneuver and craft a lie like the devil. No one. He's the best maneuverer of the lie that's ever been created. His lies are persuasive and they're believable. He crafts lies to appeal to what? Our innate sense of worth. Wow. Doesn't he? Does he craft a lie to appeal to our sense of guilt? I mean... If we had a guilt detector this morning, there's no telling how many times that thing would have gone off this morning at the back door. Just guilt that we have. How about your sense of shame? His, he crafts lies that undermine our own sense of right and wrong. He will craft a whopper of a lie that will fuel your own sense of your personal rights. Right? We all deal with that one big time. These are my personal rights and you've infringed upon them. If you name it, folks, and the devil the devil can lie about it if you name it, whatever that is. Do you think that the devil has this one down pat in the U.S.? Happiness is, and you fill in the blank. Do you think he's got this one down pat? Misery is. His lies at times come, so, come with so much persuasiveness and power. You actually come to believe that choosing his path, although it is radically in antithesis to the Word of God, is what you ought to do. He's a liar. He will lead you to think that you're justified in what you're doing, even when it's contrary to the Word of God. Y'all are looking at me very spiritual, but you know full well this happens to you. He'll spin his lie so well that you begin to think that to obey and to pursue righteousness, to follow after Christ, Won't really bring you joy, it'll bring you misery. And you won't have fun. Right? He spins it in such a way that you think you do the total opposite of what the Word says because He is so persuasive. And is this not a normal thing among young kids' lives? If I commit myself to Christ, I can't have fun. I can't do all the things that the world says actually brings you fun. But what you're missing is the joy and happiness and awesome, uh, obedient heart that is rewarded by a sovereign God that runs way deeper than that one moment of pleasure you think you're getting. But the enemy spins it. Some of you think you're pretty street smart. Some of you think that you've been in a few rodeos. Some of you think you've been around the block a few times. But I want to remind you that you pale in absolute, insignificance to the craft and lying power of the devil this text reminds us that he is scheming against us now we've looked at some general traits some general schemes of the devil but those end up governing some particulars so it's obvious that the Bible is not a handbook on satanic strategies the Bible is a book about God right Yet we are not left without witnesses of some of his strategies. Does Satan use persecution? You better believe it. Revelation 2.10. He uses it all over the world. And I know this. When persecution comes, our God is allowing it. He did it in in the early church. Why? He had to get the early church out of Jerusalem. So he allowed the persecution from the enemy so that the gospel would go. But understand, he has persecution in his arsenal. Furthermore, the beast... Brings about the persecution of the church in Revelation. He also has this other weapon in the book of Revelation. There's a false prophet who propagates his false teaching. That's a weapon. Then we read of the whore of Babylon. And that's what it really is. Who seduces. So the devil has persecution, false teaching, and subduction. He also uses particular sins in our lives to derail us. Is that not true? But I want to remind you that his attempt is not just to get you to sin one time. There's something bigger. There's something bigger at stake. In a real sense, all disobedience is a manifestation of the evil one. Remember Ephesians 2 3, y'all remember the doctrine section? He is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Y'all listening? So we have to think about what the the enemy is doing. All sin is certainly a manifestation of the original rebel, the original sinner, the one who fell from grace, Lucifer. But remember, there are some particulars that are worth heeding, okay? What do I mean by that? Some of these sins are designed to get to grasp you in order to bring about a stronghold in your life, okay? That's leading to one primary goal of the enemy. He wants to make you lose your faith. That's his goal. Why do you think you need a shield of faith, people? And there are casualties all over the United States of America and the world of people who were in the church that are now out. Understand, he has a goal at hand. I want to show you some of these sins. And I pray that we'll think about this. Okay? So Ephesians 4.26, y'all remember that one? You should have memorized it, right? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, is there a connection between verse 26 and 27? You know, is there a place for righteous anger? Well, we talked about that. Go back and listen to that sermon. Yes, of course. But we cannot harbor the anger in our hearts. Why? It's because if we give the devil a foothold, or it is because when you do that, you give the devil a foothold. Here is a particular sin of anger, and it's a peculiar sin that Satan puts his satanic power toward it. Why? Think about it for a moment. Anger is not a sin that you commit and it's over with. Are y'all listening? Anger is consuming sin. Anger eats away from the inside out. It's a destructive sin that will eventually turn into bitterness. It can blind you. It can consume you. Go ahead and read Hebrews on your own time, 12:15, and It reminds us that bitterness can cut you off from the grace of God. That's serious. If you think it's macho to come across being miffed all the time, you're a walking beachhead for the devil. There are people like that. I'm just macho. Not only do you dare people to knock the chip off your shoulder, you set it up there for them. So go ahead and knock it off, right? And you think it's macho to be miffed all the time. Well, notice what the text says. If you've been married for a while, then you know how this works. If you go to bed mad... You get up mad, right? But when you harbor anger, the devil rubs his foul hands together in delight. Because this bitterness runs deep. It's going to affect not only you, but everybody around So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here we have the sin of unforgiveness. Paul says, I have to forgive this person, and you have to forgive this person, so that we're not taken of an advantage by Satan. And we are not ignorant of his schemes. Folks, the sin of unforgiveness is one of those peculiar sins. That has a particular satanic force behind it. What happens when we will not forgive somebody from the heart? What happens? What happens when we will not forgive someone from the heart? Don't wave the hand and say to me, well this is interpersonal dynamics. No, this is called sin. It's called sin. When you will not forgive a person. That's what it's called. When we will not forgive others who have sinned against us. You are diminishing the very power and glory of the cross. Ephesians 4 says forgive others. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Right? If you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone... You're making a frontal assault on the Lord that you claim to belong to. Are y'all listening? You have no grounds to say that you're forgiven through Christ if you won't forgive others. This is what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer, correct? He also teaches it in in a parable in Matthew 18. You can't say, I'm forgiven, and yet refuse to forgive. Our adversary knows this. And he'll use this as a dynamic in your life... Have you ever stopped and wondered, and as a pastor you definitely wonder this, ready? Have you ever stopped and wondered that, you or, or have you stopped and wondered why this dynamic is at work in our lives? And I said that as a pastor because it's often at work in my life because I'm the last one to hear about the fact that you're mad at me, okay? But somebody perceived that you have done something wrong to them, and by the time that it actually gets to you, It is this huge, gargantuan leviathan that is so much bigger than what actually happened in reality. Why is this happening? It's because the devil works. He works to make the offense bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden we begin to harbor unforgiveness and it feeds on itself. And then we lose sight of the cross. We lose sight of the death of Christ on our behalf. We become filled with an unforgiving spirit that eclipses the grace of God in your own life. That's what happens. Let me give you another one. Some of you are saying, preacher, I'm so glad you hadn't gotten on my particular sin. (laughs) All right. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. I don't know if you're going to be mad at me about this one. Or some of you guys, you may be glad about this one. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Do not deprive one another. This is talking about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. Guys, you can pay me after church. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here, we have sexual sin as another peculiar sin that the devil uses. He's telling husbands and wives not to deprive one another because even when there's a time that you agree to abstain and why would you abstain? It's called a sexual fast. You abstain from one another for a certain amount of time because you're praying about a huge decision or something that you need the Lord to work in such a way that you give more time to it to pray. But even after a sexual fast, that may be for a certain amount of time, the Bible says you better come back together. Why? Come back together in intimacy. Why? So that Satan cannot tempt you in your lack of self-control. Y'all hear how clear that is? Don't forget also what was said in chapter 6, verse 17. A little bit different angle. Listen. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined... To a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin. Is that telling you that there can be some peculiar sins that cause different difficulties? May it be. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body there's a particular power about sexual sin that is consuming is deceptive it can capture your heart and it can bring destruction young people listen here we have a young man and young woman who are brought up in church and they know what the bible says clearly and they end up sleeping with a boyfriend or a girlfriend you go to them and you point out what the word of god says and they say something like this it can't be wrong because i love him it can't be wrong, preacher. We are in love. We me tell you what's happened to you. Satan has taken the alluring power of sexual sin. He has deceived and blinded and captured your heart. He is a liar every single time. You can take it to the bank. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Right? I hear a good holler back there. That's a good one. Right? So be on guard. There's a peculiarity to sexual sin. The Bible is highlighting, okay? What about pride? (whistles) Uh Uh-oh. We're going to study the office of elder tonight. And one of the qualifications is that you are not a novice or a new convert. Why? Because you can get prideful and it literally says you will give place to the enemy which was his own condemnation right which is pride so in a sense of pride it was a sense of pride that is the primal sin we might say it invades the heart what's the problem with a proud person they often think they're the humblest person in all the world right humility is that grace that when you know you have it you just lost it right it is. So, why is pride so dangerous? Why is, does it have this peculiar demonic drive to it? Because pride prevents repentance. Pride is grace prohibitive. It was Satan's chief sin which, he, which he'll gladly share with anyone. It nullifies the concept of dependence upon God. And it doesn't move you to rely upon the grace of God. Right? Right? So when you're filled with arrogance, doing it your own way, you won't depend on God and His grace. Please hear me. These and many, many more sins Satan will use to cause us to disobey God. But I'm telling you something. The end goal is to destroy your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his goal. This is his grand scheme in everything that he does. Lest the tempter, right? He comes. Paul said that in 1 Thessalonians 3. What's his goal? The tempter, lest the tempter comes and, bring, and takes you away from your devotion to Christ. That's his goal. That's his goal. Some of you are saying, well, I thought you believed in the perseverance of saints. I do, from my radiator to my tailpipe. But here's the deal. There are casualties everywhere. They went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. There are real casualties on the field, ladies and gentlemen. So if you rest on your laurels and you just say, I'm safe from all alarms, as good as that old hymn is, then you may find yourself drifting into a place where you stop and you don't even believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Peter? Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. What was, the part, of, what was, the part, what was part of this process? What happened? What was Satan's goal? It was to separate Peter From Christ. Aren't you thankful for the words of Christ? But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You better be glad if if you're a believer that we have an intercessor that never stops praying for you. That's one firm reason for perseverance of the saints, and you can't lose your salvation. You would lose it if Jesus stopped praying. But he prays without hesitation. And intercess, interceding for us forever. What a blessing that is. So, the enemy will try to do this. To, help, to cause you to destroy your confidence in the Lord. He'll do it in many ways. False doctrine. Lies. False teaching. Undermining the character of God in your heart. Making you question God's goodness. He'll do it by desensitizing your life to what sin causes. And to what sin is. It becomes so easy just to be a downright sinner. So much easier to do that than it is to trust in Christ and obey Him. And we end up just completely walking away from the Lord. So don't think that the devil doesn't know what he's doing. His goal is to do whatever it takes. Whatever sin it takes so that you abandon your faith and your confidence in the Lord. Hear this. Satan is in the killing faith business. He's in the killing faith business. And he'll do whatever he can. So... This is why there's this admonition of elders and deacons, right? And along those lines, just think about the casualties when a pastor or elder or deacon falls. So what does that mean for a congregation? You need to pray for your leaders. Because he knows for every one casualty in a pastor, there are multiple more casualties, right? So beseech the Lord God for all of us to have the shield of faith. Now last week, we're going to land the plane. You ready? Last week, we addressed the balance that we need to understand that Satan is a defeated foe. Yet at the same time, he's a roaring lion. We are fighting against a mortally wounded foe. We are. He's defeated. His head has been crushed up under Christ's work on Calvary. Amen? So stand. But here's the balance. Stand and know the enemy's strategies. Stand and ask good questions. All right, you ready? Stand and ask some good questions. How is Satan exploiting this circumstance in my life? you ever stopped and asked that question in the midst of your anger? How is the enemy exploiting this situation? How will the enemy gain ground through this? How is this assault designed to destroy my faith? Where is the devil's lie in what I'm hearing right now? And In other words, I'm encouraging you to learn to discern the devil's schemes so that you can stand and resist. We need to stop and ask ourselves questions before we plunge into a heated argument, before we plunge into dissension in the church, until we plunge into difficulty. Because here's what we often do we just run headlong right into it. And we don't stop and ask questions, we go right into it, right? You can't be half asleep at the wheel as a believer, you gotta be awake you got to be alert. you got to be asking the question, where is the lie? Young people, as Satan tempts you in sexual sin, ask yourself boldly, where is the lie in this? Dear Father, expose the lie in this and what the enemy is trying to do. So before you plunge into running down a brother and sister in this faith community, stop and ask yourself the question, where is the lie? Y'all listening? This is vitally important and I'm not talking about I told you all before I was sitting in seminary one day and Brian Ray punched me and said this sermon's so good I'm convicted about your sin (laughs) let me tell you something this is not about the person sitting next to you it's your problem it's all of our problems when it comes to this right husbands and wives when you're mixing it up speaking to one another in unkind terms stop and ask how is Satan exploiting this to get a foothold into my family Stop and ask questions. If you are truly saved, the fruit of a changed life will come out. Don't you believe that? Because you bear the nature of the Lord who lives in you. So don't forget. I don't want to leave you down. Here we go. Our enemy is a defeated foe. He is. So stand in Christ and the strength that he supplies. The scripture shouts to us, the serpent's head is crushed. The fatal blow has been struck. In the end, we win and we win big. So live consistently in your identity in Christ. Not your, uh, not your strength, but in His. And lean upon and exploit the resources that you have already in you because of Christ. In Christ we have confidence. In Christ we have hope. We do not have to live in bondage and fear. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our faith community. And Lord, I know that some of this is in your face. I know we're plowing right up next to the corn, but I'm just as guilty in many ways as many in our congregation. God, forgive us. We do not want the enemy to get an advantage. God, help us to be wise to stop and ask questions. What is this argument really accomplishing? We'll learn next, year, next week about the nature of our warfare. It's spiritual. And it's not against flesh and blood. Let us stop and consider that. Lord, help us in these areas. God, would you raise up a group of young people who love Jesus. And they're not ashamed to live it. Raise up a generation of young people who, when they marry... They present themselves sexually pure to those they marry. Only men and women. Heterosexual marriage. Ordained by God from the beginning. God, may you help them at school. Lord, may you send revival into the teachers and the faculty and administrators in Ozark school systems. God, may you do it in Nixa. Lord, may you... Help us to live for you. Lord, the greatest advertisement to this world is a believer who loves Jesus and is not ashamed of it. God, help us to live for you. Lord, the greatest advertisement is Christians who have joy. Joy in the Lord. Lord, help us. Father, if there's someone under the sound of my voice who's lost, Lord, help them understand that they're under the sway of the enemy. They're in darkness. They're of their father, the devil. But you are in the redemption mode. You are our redeemer. And you are the stronger one. And you can take them from the strong one and deliver them into the kingdom of heaven. May you do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Let's stand and sing. Take up your cross. Take up thy cross and follow
1: me, I heard my master say.
2: in our church with a lot of wisdom have said to me and they're right pastor make sure you tell people about God's forgiveness so I know I came down hard on sexual sin but you know what God forgives aren't you thankful now he does say go and sin no more right so there's this understanding that you don't get up you don't have this thing well I'll just go ahead and do it and I'll ask forgiveness and I'll be fine that's a lie of the enemy Don't believe it. However, aren't you thankful for sweet forgiveness? That no matter what it is that you've done against the Lord, that if you repent and turn to Him, acknowledge that it is sin, confess, right, your sins, and He is faithful and just. Agree with God that what you did is sin. Confess that. Give it to the Lord. Seek forgiveness, and He is faithful and just. To forgive. It would be against his nature not to forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good stuff. It's good preaching no matter who you are. Amen. Know that God does that. Let's sing one more verse. He
1: drew me closer to his side. I saw.
2: the Lord bless. Hopefully, we'll have church Wednesday night. We've been snowed out the last two, and uh, I'm from Georgia, so I love to see snow, but I'm about tired of it for a little while, all right? I've been slipping and sliding out my driveway for quite some time now, and I live way out Highway W, so that snow sticks around. Sure does. So hopefully Wednesday night, we will have church. Tonight, please come back. I'm going to be preaching on elders, something you need to hear. So I hope you'll come back tonight. KC don't play till next week, right? No excuse, no football to watch, no. So I'll see you tonight, all right? By the way, next Sunday night is a normal visitation. But what we're going to do is, if we have visitation cards, I want you to pick them up as you leave Sunday morning from the service. We won't come back to the church next Sunday evening, okay? But I think I filled, I signed at least six letters This week of new visitors that have come to our church. So we've got visits to make. So uh, please grab a card next Sunday when you leave the church. God bless you. Amen.